Hello and welcome to I.O., the Innovation in Ophthalmology podcast. This podcast intends to be a series of discussions with leaders in ophthalmology innovation to learn more about how they were able to innovate in their field, integrate innovations into their practice, and how they see the future of ophthalmology innovation unfolding. Today we have with us an incredible surgeon, clinician, and professor. We're lucky to have Dr. Hadi Sahab with us today. Dr. Hadi Sahab is an ophthalmologist and glaucoma surgeon based in Montreal, Canada. He's an associate professor and director of the Complex Glaucoma and Advanced Anterior Segment Surgery Fellowship at McGill University's Department of Ophthalmology and is on the board of directors at the Canadian Ophthalmological Society. Dr. Saheb earned his medical degree and completed his residency at McGill. He's then a glaucoma fellow at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute in Miami and completed a second fellowship in glaucoma and advanced anterior segment surgery with Dr. Ike Ahmed at the University of Toronto. He also completed a master's in public health at the Bloomberg School of Public Health of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore with a specific focus on clinical trials and health leadership. He's an accomplished surgeon and researcher in minimally invasive glaucoma surgery, or MIGS, and it is an honor to have the opportunity to speak with him today. So hello and welcome, Dr. Saheb. Thank you, Sean. Sean was our uh, stellar medical student at McGill and now uh, doing some great work in, in Toronto. And it's so nice to see your uh, enthusiasm of innovations in ophthalmology and you setting up this podcast. So kudos and congratulations. And it's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Um, so the first question we'll ask is, when did you first develop an interest in MIGS? Uh, so during my residency. So I, uh, I qualify myself as a, as a keener resident. I probably still am a keener. Uh, and as with many uh, keen residents, I was kind of gung-ho for retina because retina was filled with, you know, a variety of surgical techniques and, you know, innovation at the time. So my residency was between 2005 and 2010. And glaucoma never really caught my attention. And then I was at uh, a conference and, you know, your current mentor and my, uh, and my former mentor, Ike Ahmed, was presenting on all this groundbreaking work in glaucoma. And I said, well, you know, in the real world, glaucoma is medications and lasers and then trabs and tubes and really not much else. And, and so that's why I hadn't caught much of my attention. And, and when I saw that there was a lot going on and, and future innovation uh, that, that's, uh, that's coming, I got you know, a little bit more excited about it and, uh, and ended up doing an elective uh, with him. Uh, and, and it was clear to me that, you know, the future of glaucoma was bright and there was so much to offer patients. There's so much work to be done. There's so many questions to be answered. Um, and I kind of shifted gears towards glaucoma and I'm so happy I did. I think, you know, I feel I've been part of this wave of innovation with MIGS and, and hopefully will continue to be part of the transformation of glaucoma care. And so, you know, to answer your question, it was in my last year uh, of residency. Uh, and, uh, and then, so during fellowship with, as you mentioned, my first fellowship was in Miami. It was all traditional heavy glaucoma surgery, you know, invasive glaucoma surgery. And I love that training. And I still do most of those surgeries today. Um, and then I spent, a, a, after my fellowship, I spent some more time in, in Toronto uh, with Ike Ahmed and his team. And that's when I was exposed to all the new devices. You know, they were, you know, one of the, iStent was approved by then, but everything else is still investigational, you know. All the things that we take for granted now, you know, Hydris, Zen, Cypass, uh, were all being trialed at the time uh, when I was in fellowship uh, then. And now, of course, you know, years later, after um, hundreds of patients and, and trials and FDA approvals and Health Canada approvals, we now all use them uh, in our everyday glaucoma practice. But at the time, they're all just being investigated. Okay, yeah, so it sounds like you're really at the forefront at that time. I guess it must have been very exciting to be a young fellow or a sort of new um, ophthalmologist at that time. 
So what was it like to be so fresh into practice and also on the sort of forefront of what's being developed? Uh, exciting is, is, the, uh, is the simple answer. Uh, that being said, you know, you walk into, you know, the, every day there are patients that need you in the real world. You know, they're not research subjects. They're in the real world and you need to offer them what's commercially available, what's proven, what's Health Canada, you know, approved. Um, and so, you know, the, the innovation, the, the access innovation was gradual over time. I remember when I started, the only MIGS device that was approved was, uh, was iStent. So I was, you know, the first at my academic center to offer iStent and, and that was exciting. Uh, but all the other devices were not yet commercially available, you know, and so there were some research trials that I was involved in. So I was able to offer my patients some of those uh, innovative devices that were not yet officially approved. Uh, but most of my practice was still doing, uh, you know, the traditional glaucoma surgeries that I learned in, uh, in my residency and fellowship. Uh, and so balancing those two parts of your practice, you know, what, what's mainstream and also, you know, the innovation and wanting to, you know, push that part of uh, glaucoma care forward was happening in parallel. And now 10 years later, of course, you know, the majority of the devices that I initially saw being investigated are I'm now offering, you know, on a weekly basis to my patients. So, so to answer your question, the beginning was exciting. Uh, and also there was this a little bit of a disconnect between uh, the devices I was, you know, uh, working on or writing about or, or thinking about and the procedures I was able to offer my patients. And now we've bridged that gap over the last 10 years, mostly. Okay, so since you were at the beginning of the MIGS, let's, let's call it the revolution at the time, did you have any pushback from patients when you were pitching a new or breakthrough surgery? And has this changed since MIGS has become more mainstream? You know, I have not found that to be a, a, a major uh, challenge or occurrence. Uh, the, I feel like the majority of my patients most of their information about their, you know, treatment options are, is coming from the physician patient encounters or our encounters. Um, so, you know, the way I present the treatment options are, you know, if I think it's appropriate for the patient, I'm presenting it as the preferred option and telling them a little bit more about it. Um, and, you know, if it's the first year that it's approved, I'll mention that, but if it's been approved for a number of years, that's not really the focus of the conversation. So I'd say most of my patients, you know, if I'm excited about, uh, about the procedure and I feel like it's best for them, you know, usually they're, uh, they're on board and, and keen to move forward. I think that will change, um, you know, as the, as the internet generation kind of ages into the glaucoma uh, patient age group, I think there will be more questions because there'll be a lot more, you know, Google search or PubMed search before they show up to the office. But I think currently it's, it's not very common. I, I can think of, of one exception. I have uh, a senior researcher at an academic center, not a physician, but a researcher who's you know familiar with clinical trial designs and so on, um, who was an ideal candidate for FACO MIGS. And when I offered that as a as an option for her, she had a lot of questions, and she you know had looked up the trials and wanted to know about the study design and what my thoughts were, and um, and so you know, but that's a it's a rare occurrence. Um, that being said, after the you know the the prolonged conversation about the various trials on the mixed procedure I had suggested to her, you know she was she was on board and, and had the had the procedure a few weeks ago and, and thankfully has has, has done well. Um, but all this to say, I, I think it's a rare occurrence. Still, most patients are getting most of their information from the physician encounter in my practice. 
Okay, so that's good to hear. So it sounds like there's a lot of, I guess, trust, first of all, with your patients in your practice, um, which is leading to, I guess, a better belief in, in, in the surgeries you do. So that's, that's phenomenal. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I guess the next question I have to ask is, do you feel that there are other clinical or surgical aspects of ophthalmology that will be replaced in the coming years or decades? And if so, which ones? I mean, of course, and we hope so, right? If we're doing the same thing we're doing today in 20 years or 30 years, there's, uh, there's likely a problem. And so, and, and the first thing I'll say is even in the 10 years I've been in practice, things have changed, you know, uh, and I practice differently today than I did 10 years ago. And so, you know, what are those changes or new medications, more preservative-free options? So I'm using less of the kind of older medications. Um, you know, the light trial uh, has shown how, you know, important of a role SLT plays in our treatment algorithm. So more patients are undergoing SLT earlier in the disease process than they did before. That also means more medication, more patients are medication free. Uh, of course, there's the MIGS explosion. You know, more patients are are getting MIGS than than before. And you know, when we talk about MIGS, there's always this undertone of is the TRAB disappearing? And in my practice, it's not. Uh, there's still a uh, proportion of patients that I feel are best served by TRAB, and so I'm definitely doing TRABs on a number of patients. But that piece of the pie is going down for TRAB. So yes, it's. It's less relevant than it was before because of all the other surgical options we have, but it's still present. So it's kind of a, a really quick overview of what's changed just in the last 10 years. But looking forward and also taking a step back from glaucoma care specifically, I think you know primary care in ophthalmology is likely going to change in the sense that I think a lot of it will be outsourced. So what does that mean? You know, diabetic screening, um, glaucoma screening, uh, you know, macro generation screening, these common diseases are likely going to slowly move out of ophthalmology practices over time and be outsourced to either technology, um, screening programs, artificial intelligence, optometry colleagues. So I think a lot of that is going to be uh, outsourced to non-ophthalmology care. And just to give an example, um, there's a, a provincial program here in Quebec uh, that's being developed for diabetic retinopathy screening. You know, So initially with human readers and we'll integrate AI and if AI performs as well as it has in the studies, AI will likely uh, take on part of the role of the human readers. And, um, and in that program, eventually glaucoma will likely be tacked on, macular degeneration will be tacked on. So you can already see you know, this is not something that's planned for 10 years from now. This provincial program is being planned for as we speak. And so I think that will, um, that will be a big part of, of the, uh, the changes we see in Alpha. Okay, so I have to ask, that's the sort of offloading towards primary care, towards optometry or screening programs, is very controversial, especially in the States, it's, it's gotten a lot of controversy. How do, you, how do you feel about this? Do you feel that this is a positive shift for uh, the healthcare system and for patients, or do you feel that this may have um, unintended consequences? So, you know, I think, I think what's clear is that, you know, ophthalmologists remain, you know, the 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 members of the vision care team that are you know medical doctors and surgically trained and trained to perform laser procedures and you know that that remains you know we are the you know we're the only group of you know vision care professionals that have all that training you know to offer the best care for patients um, that being said i think to maximize you know the the 
the benefit to the patients of the various members of the vision care team, you know, including optometrists. Optometrists are well trained to screen for screen for diseases, you know. And uh, I'll do a shout out to the Canadian Ophthalmology Society um, and all the work they're doing to try and you know lead the vision care team because as ophthalmologists we are the leaders of the vision care team and and try to help each of the groups you know best understand what their role is so that we can take care of patients together. Um, and so to answer your question, I do think that optometry you know, already plays a role in, in screening and should continue to play a role in the context of, you know, laser procedures, surgical procedures, complex medical assessments still being performed by the people that are best trained to do those things. Um, so, uh, so yes, I think the transition is, is there, but I think, you know, what's best for patient needs to remain at the forefront and whoever's best trained to do, um, you know, any of those aspects of, you know, uh, vision care uh, should remain. Okay. So you also mentioned the light trial. I'm very curious to know how you adjust your practice um, in response to new research like that. So I believe the light trial came out in mid-2022, if I'm correct. Has that changed the way you practice? Has it changed the way you do laser or the options you uh, sort of go forward with? Yeah. So even though the light trial was this, you know, it's a landmark trial, you know, really well designed and kudos to the investigators. But the truth is that there were a number of studies, not as well designed, not as impactful, you know, not as quote unquote landmark. There are a number of studies that, you know, gave us hints that SLT, you know, really played a, an important role and was a great option for, for patients. So, you know, I was not alone in offering SLT treatment to my patients early in the disease process. I was not. But it truly was a you know, there are two options. What would you what would you prefer? And in fact, when patients would ask me, you know, Doc, I'm happy to go either way. What would you What would you prefer? And often I would lean towards drops just because I felt drops were a daily reminder that they had a condition to come back and get their care and so on. And that was my tendency prior to light trial. And so what the light trial did was really, you know, made it crystal clear that SLT is as good as drops and likely, likely a little bit better. Um, and then there's been additional studies since then that have that little bit better is becoming, you know, more than just little. Uh, and I think most of us are, are convinced that SLT, you know, likely provides more value than, uh, than medication as initial treatment, as long as the patient understands it's not a cure and doesn't disappear. So how has it changed my practice? I, you know, I, I continue to present it as, as an option for patients, medications versus lasers. I do give them both options. But when they do tell me which one you think is better, I say exactly what I told you. Both of them are excellent and they're relatively similar. However, the, the you know, recent studies have suggested that the laser treatment might be more beneficial to your long-term um, uh, result and, and long-term outcome for glaucoma. So I'm, I'm just leaning a little bit more towards SLT than I did before, uh, although SLT was always part of, my, uh, part of my discussions with patients. Okay, I see. Uh, so it sounds like the drop, though, will someday be retired. Is that, is that a goal? Would that be something that you think the ophthalmology community should, should work towards? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think um, I think we should aim to offer patients treatments that don't depend on their their compliance and don't impose side effects. Uh, that being said, 
I'm, I, I can't imagine a world where all our glaucoma patients will be, you know, sufficiently and safely treated without, uh, without drops. And so, um, you know, even patients that come to me and say, I, I want to be off drops. I'll say, absolutely. We've got a number of options. Let's work together on finding an option for you. Um, especially if they're young, though, I'll often say, you know, you're young enough that in your lifetime, you will likely need to be on drops at some point. But let's try and get your pressure to a safe level without drops uh, for as many years as we can. So, yeah, I'd love to see a drop-free world. I, I just still can't imagine it uh, yet uh, in a, you know, in a lifelong way for, for each of our patients. I see. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit, more to you as a surgeon, more to your technique. Uh, how do you continue to train and improve or refine your technique as a surgeon, especially as the range of MIGS devices continues to widen? Good question. I... My biggest luxury is that I train residents and fellows. There's not a day I have in the OR without, you know, residents and or fellows there. And why is that a luxury? Is that I'm constantly teaching people the basics of surgery. And learning new techniques is all about, you know, having the basics uh, in a, you know, knowing the basics in a very solid way. Because, you know, let's face it, most of the glaucoma surgeries, you know, they're inflow procedures or outflow procedures or ab interno, ab externo. You need to be comfortable in the angle. You need to be comfortable manipulating the conge. Uh, you need to be comfortable with the, you know, anatomy of the globe and the orbit. And, you know, most procedures, you know, are you can tack, tack them on to some of the basics that you already have. And so I have found that learning new techniques really require you to take a step back and go back to the basics to make sure your basic techniques are there. And then you adapt those basic techniques to the new procedure. So, so the first part of the answer is because of the residents and fellows in the room, I'm always thinking and talking and, and emphasizing the importance of those basic techniques that end up helping me when I take on a new technique. And then, you know, just my personality is, is one that. You know, I'm always open to new approaches to things. It doesn't need to be a new surgery, but a new way of doing the same surgery. And I don't think a year has gone by in my tenure practice where I haven't taken on a new procedure or device. Um, uh, so that has always kind of kept me on my toes, always, you know, I don't know if the word is malleable, but, you know, just able to, to take, on, uh, take on new procedures. So that's, that's, I think, how. Just today I did a... A surgery that I've never done before. It was, well, it was a technique that I've never done before for scleral fixation. Um, it's called the belt, belt loop technique that I just haven't uh, done before. And and so what did I do? I read about it. I watched videos. I spoke to people who have done that procedure. Um, and then I did a little bit of you know pseudo wet lab at the microscope uh, before I did the case. And then took my time during the case. And it was it was great. The patient did well. I was exhilarated by you know, having done this new technique. The fellow was thrilled. Uh, to be part of it as well, and so it was. You know, I, I thought it was. Uh, thought it's great, and that's kind of what part of what what keeps me going and keeps me so excited about glaucoma care and and, and surgery in general is uh, is all the innovation that's happening. That's very cool. So I, I love to hear that there's a there's still a learning process, and it's nice to hear that uh, a surgeon actually goes back to the wet lab as well and has to you know, re I guess learn new techniques. So that's uh, that's very cool. I love the fact uh, that you get to teach. You know, learn through teaching. The Feynman technique, I think, is uh, what it's called. Okay, so the one final question, or I guess maybe not final, but a question we have is, what advice do you have to early career trainees and ophthalmologists towards integrating new technologies into their careers? I, I want to just start and say, do it. It's the best. And, uh, and, and that is, you know, a 
I'll, I'll probably come back to that term in, in a minute or two. Um, I, I think there's some, you know, reflection required, you know, I probably heard of the innovation curve, you know, there's the early adopters and there's probably even a subgroup of early adopters and ventures. And then there's kind of the average of, you know, uh, ophthalmologist. And then there's the, I think they call them laggards, although that, that sounds like a, a negative term, but the people that take on innovation, you know, even later than the, the average, you, you kind of need to know where you fit on that curve and you need to be honest with yourself. You know, I think there's so much, excitement about innovation, there might even be a little bit of peer pressure to be innovators. And not everybody can be an innovator and not everybody should be an innovator. You know, I think, you know, innovators, there's a, there's a specific kind of personality that's well suited to the to innovators. Some of the things we just discussed about surgical learning before, you have to be comfortable being a little bit nervous. You have to be comfortable doing something slightly out of your comfort zone. You have to be comfortable having honest conversations with patients about, you know, where this device fits in the approval process. If it is something that's investigational, all those things, you need to be comfortable with those things. And not everybody is and not everybody should be. So the first thing is to have that reflection, you know, where you are on the innovation curve and why. Um, and then the second is that if you are going to uh, take on, uh, you know, new procedures, new does not necessarily equal good, right? And um, you have to do your due diligence. So just something, just because something is being advertised or the few people that have done it, um, or you see a video at a meeting or on YouTube or on iTube, it doesn't mean it's good, you know, do the Take a step back, do your due diligence, speak to the people who have done it. There are always things that they'll mention to you that are not on their perfect video. You know, try to see if there's any evidence. Ideally, there's evidence about the procedure before you're doing it. Um, and then decide what level of evidence you need before you're willing to uh, try it yourself and offer it to your patients. Um, and so I think that aspect of due diligence and not just jumping on a bandwagon because a few of the people have done it are, is important. Um, and that's what's going to make you feel good. Um, when you're offering it to the patient, that's what's going to make you be at peace. Um, if you have an unfortunate, you know, outcome, which happens to all of us. Um, so I, I really think that process for me has been really important to do my due diligence for anything new that I do um, to make sure that I'm offering the right procedure to the right patient and also at the right time in the in the investigational curve of that procedure, right? Whether it's, you know, first year or two or is it being investigated or approved by fda but not health canada or approved by health canada but not other countries right where does it fit on the approval um, process curve as well so and then the final thing is you know if you do feel like you are on the early you know early adopter side or innovator side you know do it i think it's great i think this is what allows our field to advance you know both of us have been mentored by ike ahmed who is who has done this throughout his career and if it wasn't for people like him that were comfortable being an early adopter, comfortable, you know, implanting devices before it was, you know, in a randomized control trial of 500 patients, well, those control, randomized control trials have never happened, right? And so that's why that curve is important. And we need to have people on each stage of that curve um, to allow innovation to happen, but also to allow, you know, the population to receive the devices at the right time. Okay, so if I can, you know, I'm hearing, I guess, throughout the answers you're providing, a sort of humility, you know, as a surgeon as well, to come back to that learning, to come back to checking up on the research behind what you're providing patients, uh, coming back to actually refining those techniques before you actually provide it to a patient. So that's that's very refreshing to hear. I think a lot of a lot of surgeons are very, you know, eager to say that it's it's something you know easy to do, just to to go jump in and to to start right away. But I think it takes a, a little bit of 
self-reflection and humility to say, I, I need to review this, or I need to you know, perfect this before I take it to my patients. So that's uh, very, very interesting to hear. Um, one thing I did also want to touch on as we're sort of heading out uh, towards the end of the interview, uh, Dr. Saheb was involved in a very interesting um, outreach initiative involving a blindfolded run. Could you speak to our listeners about that a little bit, if that's, if that's okay with you? Of course, yeah. That was a transformative experience for me. So I was inspired by uh, my cousin, who's a scientist, but not ophthalmologist, who did a blindfolded, won the Guinness a record for the longest blindfolded run. She, she ran a marathon blindfolded. And I was inspired by her to uh, live that experience. I didn't do a marathon, but I did do 50 kilometers kind of spread out over a few months. Uh, and the initial the initial goal was to, you know, feel a little bit more connected to my patients who have suffered from vision loss, uh, also to take on a personal challenge and then do some, you know, uh, awareness uh, efforts for for glaucoma is never enough of those. And so last summer, I, I started that challenge. And I'd say the most intimidating part was the first two, three minutes of each run to put on that blindfold and go complete blackout. Um, my heart rate went up every single time and, and there was, you know, a little bit of heavy breathing. Uh, and then, you know, there was the aspect of trusting my guide. Of course, if you're blindfolded, you can't run alone. That would be that would be crazy. So you have to run with a guide. And my challenge was to run as fast as I did without a blindfold. You know, that was my goal. Every run is to get to like my non-blindfolded speed. And the only way to get there is really to trust the person who's right there. So that was also kind of a, a personal growth moment. Um, and, uh, and then the final, the final 5k, we had a little bit of media involvement and an awareness campaign for glaucoma and a fundraising, uh, campaign for glaucoma. So, you know, the real wins for me were the connection was the connection with the patients, one that I felt just by being blindfolded and, and having a little bit more of a connection to what vision loss meant, even if it was just temporary on my end. Um, and also the connection with the patients, because when the patients heard about this or saw it on TV, they were, you know, just really thrilled and 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 excited to to tell me how much it meant to them to to see me make that uh, effort, um, and then the awareness that came from it, and uh, and of course the fundraising as well. All of those were were big wins for for me. So I'm, it was a scary experience, but a transformative one and a and a pretty good one. All right, that's uh, that's fantastic, and I, I can't imagine doing that myself. So that's truly amazing that you did it, and and that. I guess you were able to connect with patients like that. And that's like truly empathy to, to take on their, their struggle and to show that you uh, can understand it to some, to, to some extent. So uh, yeah. absolutely incredible. And uh, I would like to try that someday if I can find the trust uh, in my guide to do that. But, uh, but even really if you can, incredible. just when you're walking around in your room, close your eyes, even if it's <laughs> for 10 seconds, it's really, it's really something to, to walk without to walk without sight is, um, you know, we're, we're so blessed to be in a field where we're taking care of such an important sense. It sounds like, you know, a little bit cheesy, but it was really enlightening um, to, uh, to, you know, to remind myself we're taking care of people's vision and it's such a valuable sight. Um, and patients tell us that and we kind of take it for granted. But I think when you have those few moments without vision, it really uh, reinforces how important the sense of sight is and, and the privilege and and the luxury we have to take care of people's uh, sense of sight. Truly, it's it's really a privilege. Um, so, any any last comments for our listeners? Any any tips, advice, inspirational words, even? 
I think I covered a lot of uh, a lot of the things on my mind. Uh, I think you know we're as I just said we're in, in such a, a privileged uh, position to to be in ophthalmology. It's it's such a great field in the sense that we take care of something that's so important to patients. It's also a great field in the sense that you know there's a lot of innovation and we feel like we're you know in a in a evolving field where we continue to offer our patients better and better treatments. You know, as I said, in just ten, a ten year career. I already feel like I'm offering my patients something better than I did 10 years ago and certainly better than what I saw in training. And I know that in 10 years from now, it's going to continue to get better. And to have, to be part of a, to be in a field where those improvements to patient care are continuing to occur, it's, it's just great. It's great. It makes our, our work uh, so much, uh, so much more rewarding. So, you know, if you're thinking about ophthalmology, you know, it's, it's, such a rewarding field and if you're in ophthalmology and you're having a tough day because you're working too hard or you had a tough outcome just take a step back and remember how how fortunate we are to to do what we do um and uh and if you're just about to get into ophthalmology i know there's people going through carnes right now you know good luck and hope to congratulate all of you uh in a few months when uh when you get your results all right. Thank you so much. That was an incredible interview. And uh, I learned a lot and I'm hoping the listeners learn a lot as well. So thank you again. And uh, this will conclude the, uh, the interview for today. Thank you. Thank you.